They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you and powered by Bombas, the mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I am joined by my tag team partner, the heavenly body himself, primetime John Paz. John, how are you? Hey, yo, I'm doing pretty good. I feel, uh, feel pretty heavenly right now. You feeling like uh, the Doctor of Desire? Uh, almost like the Jello himself. Oh yeah, I feel like you're uh, making that little gyration that uh, the Jigolo did <laughs> as we speak, and I'm just completely repulsed. But with that being said, on the show today is the man himself, the Doctor of Desire, Doctor Tom Pritchard, a guy that we've been waiting to get on for a long time, and it did not disappoint. What an awesome interview. We covered everything. We covered his career. We covered his time working as a trainer. We covered what he's doing post-time uh, as an official WWE trainer. And uh, it was just so awesome. I don't know where to start, but uh, what are some of your highlights? Uh, Brackus, definitely. I mean, that was huge highlight. Oh, yeah. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, I really enjoyed him talking about his time as a trainer as well. I mean, I love the, the, the stories of the rock. I love the Kurt angle stuff. Um, that stuff is, I don't know. That's really interesting to me because it's almost like, um, you know, he played such a key role in those guys career, whether, um, people realize it or not. Yeah, he totally did. And he was such an integral part of that late nineties, uh, developmental machine, which included, uh, Dory Funk and then Dr. Tom himself and, and the team that they had up in uh, Stanford where they were working basically out of the WWE warehouse. And that's where you saw all those names that came in, like uh, like Draws and the Hardys and Edge and Christian. And it was such a, a boom period for developmental in the late 90s that uh, really kind of set the table for years to come. And we'll get to the rest of his trainees uh, in a minute, but let's talk about his career for a minute if we can, and that is uh, both as a singles and as a tag team. Very accomplished uh, singles career, but I think more remembered for his tag team with uh, either Stan Lane or Jimmy Del Rey as the Heavenly Bodies. I know we beat the Survivor Series 1993 into the ground because it was such a huge match for Smoky Mountain Wrestling and the Heavenly Bodies, Uh, but if you could recollect on uh, the Doctor of Desire and the Gigolo, Jimmy Del Rey together as the Heavenly Bodies, what are some of your favorite memories? Definitely the Survivor Series, and his story about it is great because it was in Boston, and he said they had a Southern-style tag match, but I'll let, obviously I'll let him tell a story, but he tells a great, great story about that. You have a little story about it. I have a little story about it. I mean, it really, we really go into that match in detail, but that's some great stuff. Um, really, really I enjoyed 
uh, talking about the Steiner brothers because that was such a like integral match for them. SummerSlam '93 in Michigan, so it was a huge match for the Heavenly Bodies, and he tells a great story about what they thought was going to happen and what did happen. So I mean, really, really cool stuff from there. And then obviously, I think it goes without saying they're one of the most underrated tag teams of all time. The Heavenly Bodies, they were awesome. Uh, Stan Lane was great, but uh, Pritchard and uh, Del Rey was just awesome. Their chemistry in the ring was great, but it's also great hearing about their chemistry outside of the ring was not so great. So it's always interesting, you know, the behind-the-scenes factor. Because in the ring, you think, you know, they're, they're must be clicking on all cylinders. They must be buddies outside the ring. But nope, not the case. Two completely different personalities, and they just uh, mesh together so well in the ring. Yeah, I'll get back to that in a second because that's very interesting. But just to touch on the Steiners really quickly, you know what I thought was the most interesting part of that story of SummerSlam 93 was that they had never met the Steiners before. And I found that to be just so crazy that, you know, at that point in 1993 with all the territories that, uh, you know, they'd worked at, maybe they'd crossed paths at some point, but he had never met uh, Rick or or Scott Steiner prior to getting to the WWF. So I just thought that was just something that kind of – you know, floored me uh, a little bit. I was very surprised. But talking about the gigolo, you know, who unfortunately tragically passed away uh, not too long ago, earlier this year, and uh, I recall very, very, uh, very, very well that they had just reunited late last year, and it was a big thing that they had not talked for a long time. And it's very cool that inside the ring you can be as uh, thick as thieves, but. He basically told uh, the gigolo that outside of the ring, you go your way, you, I'll go the other way, and we'll meet at the uh, the matches, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of funny the way it works out the way, because if you've seen them in the ring, I mean, obviously, you would think that, man, these guys just, they must feel like best buds, you know? They're connected so well in the ring, and they, they flow so well. The matches are great. I mean, they're having awesome matches with uh, the Thrill Seekers. They're having awesome matches with the Rock and Roll Express, of course. They're having awesome matches with the Fantastics, the Steiners. I mean, look goes on and on. But it's funny, outside the ring, they, you know, not hate each other, but, you know, they came to an agreement that they just will not hang out outside the ring because Jimmy Del Rey maybe looks for a little trouble and Dr. Tom, the Dr. Desire, you know, maybe would let uh, some trouble come to him. He doesn't go out looking for it. Yeah, and I think that speaks to his longevity in the business as well as that he was smart about how he approached his uh, career, and uh, it led to a very long tenured stay in the WWE. And uh, that's where we'll kind of uh, end it before we throw it to the interview, and that is the comments that he uh, gave us about the members of the Shield in coming up in FCW. And I was very, uh, very taken back by his comments because uh, you can really – dissect it with a very fine uh, tooth comb because, you know, he basically said he thought Ambrose was the one that was going to break out, and uh, turns out that Seth Rollins is the one who played the politics the best out of everybody, and uh, if you look at the landscape of things, Rollins is the champ, Ambrose is kind of uh, suffering in the mid-card, and Roman Reigns, they don't know what to do with him, but uh, Dr. Tom said that he was the pegged star by management and here we are a few years later and it's all uh kind of uh, in shambles as compared to what he thought yeah but he does say he he knew that seth rollins was good enough um you know you'll hear in the interview he basically was saying he's good enough 
obviously to be the champion. He's a great wrestler, but you know, he thought something different, and I think that Vince McMahon himself thought something different about the Shield as well. And it's funny, uh, you, know, you just roll like the, let's just say Dice Pat met him in what probably 2012. Now you roll yourself ahead three years, and you look at the Shield now. Like I said, Ambrose sometimes gets elevated to the main event, basically only if he's fighting Rollins because they have great chemistry. Otherwise, he's a mid Carter. And then Reigns is just floating around, kind of feuding with Bray Wyatt, horrible feud, you know, feuding with this person, and a really bad feud. So he's kind of just, you know, a big squandered opportunity there that they thought he was going to be main eventer, but he's just either not ready or, you know, maybe just the crowd isn't quite getting into him. So it's funny looking back and then looking forward to see what happened to the Shield. And I don't think anybody's where, you know, they thought that, they would be, except, you know, maybe us, because we were saying that we thought Rollins was the, the best of the three. Yeah. yeah. Well, what he said was, you know, that he basically management pegged Rollins and Ambrose as FCW mid-carters. And if you remember, mm. it didn't yep. take until yep. they moved over to NXT for Rollins to get the NXT championship. So yep. that also yep. coincides with the departure of Dr. Tom, which we really did not get into at all. And that's fine, because... He is really a standout uh, as a you know professional trainer outside of the WWE. He does tons of seminars. He's got a lot of stuff coming up. And really pay attention to his plugs at the end because he'll send you to the right place to find the seminars that he's going to be teaching at so you can learn from the doctor himself. That is Dr. Tom at primetime. Before we throw it over to the interview, I think we've got a little two-man power trip of wrestling business to attend to, and that is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today by Bombas, the mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And what else do you have to say, my brother? Yes, TNPT Business. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at WrestlingPal and at Two-Man Power Trip. And, of course, the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And on the upper left-hand corner, you will see the Bombas link. Please click on that and do all of your Bombas shopping through us. Now, with Bombas, buy a pair. One gets donated to the homeless. Not only do they get the greatest sock of all time, but you get the greatest sock of all time as well. Now they're available in Americanos, which is... USA colors, the red, white, and blue. Also available in solids. And just released this week, they're available in brights as well. So please go to the upper left-hand corner of our site, click on the Bombas link, and do all your Bombas shopping through us. Now to one of the most informative and great interviews that we've ever done. It's a great one, folks. I guarantee you that the Doctor of Desire, Dr. Tom, if you want to listen to a man who not only had a, his footprint, his handprint, if you will, on training The Rock, Kurt Angle, The Hardys, and all three members of The Shield, you're going to want to listen to one of the greatest trainers of all time. Not only that, but one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, the Doctor of Desire, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Please enjoy. Stand on your feet and feast your eyes on a man who is regarded as not only one of the best pro wrestling coaches in the wrestling business, but he is also 
a former WWF Tag Team Champion, a Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, a USWA World Champion, a USWA Tag Team Champion, and, of course, a CWF World Champion. He is the Doctor of Desire. He is Dr. Tom Pritchard. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Uh, it's a pleasure, man. Anytime I hear about a power trip, I want to be a part of it, man. It's great. Two, three, four, doesn't matter how many it takes, but as long as we have some power going on, it's all good. <laughs> See, in my first, first run-through, I did that intro in a little bit more of a uh, James E. Cornette tone, but for the sake of not sounding incredibly corny, I just went a little bit uh, down in the Ooh, octave. ouch. Yeah. But, yeah let's, not sound, means... let's not sound corny by any means, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But with that being said, now you've got a lot of training seminars coming up, and you're a very busy man when it comes to training the superstars of the future. Now, with that being said, what is it when you get these guys in for a new class? What's the first thing that you, you tell them as they sit down and they study under the tree of Dr. Tom? I, I think the first thing that everyone has to understand is you have to have a passion for this. It can't You can't be in it. Uh, for the money and uh, fame and fortune, because unfortunately uh, that doesn't happen to very many of us. Um, but you have to you have to be in this for the love and passion of professional wrestling. And I will go ahead and say slash sports entertainment. And that's that's the first and uh, foremost thing I also stress. And I also stress that uh, in my opinion, and wrestling is. As Steve Colonel used to say, wrestling is just an opinion. There's not just one way to do it. Uh, but the most important thing in this business to me is attitude. And uh, I've been guilty, as everybody else, of having a bad attitude at times and and um, a great attitude at times. But uh, those are those are the main things I instill: is you have to have a passion for this, you have to really love it uh, to be good at it, and um, uh, everything else will fall into place. Now, with the state of the wrestling business as it is today, do you see an influx of people wanting to get in now, the younger generation kind of wanting to explore, you know, a new ground of trying to get into, uh, quite frankly, a different business really than I guess what, you know, the, the, the class 20 years ago might have been getting into? Yeah, you know, when I look around and uh, the the few – Independent shows I go to or some of the, the camps and seminars that I do, um, the guys don't really see the big picture. They see WWE. They, they know Raw and SmackDown. And it's not their fault. That's, that's just all they have access to and that's all they see. And it can be really enticing and, and uh, intoxicating, I guess is the word I'm looking for, because watching on Monday nights uh, – you, you see the, the, the glitz, the glamour, the pyro, and, and uh, the excitement. But what you don't see are the houses that uh, you draw maybe a 1,000 people or less or, or the road. And, and years ago, when I first spoke in, I can romanticize all day long, and I, and I will, about how great the road was. Because it was back then, and that was, it was a different kind of business. But these days... Um, uh, I don't think the young guys and girls getting in today, of course, not all of them are this way, but but the most, the, the majority of them are. They see it as a different uh, uh, picture. They're, they're romanticizing, you know, coming to the big arenas and, and being a huge star. And some get to be that huge star, but most don't. And uh, that's 
that's what I see a lot of today. Uh, I, I don't think there's that many who really understand uh, the sacrifice and dedication it takes uh, to, to really get where they want to be. They say they do, and they say they'll do anything and everything. And, and when I say, you know, there's three kinds of people in this world, those who try, and when they don't make it, well, at least they say they tried. And then the person who says, I'll give it my best shot. When they don't make it, they say, well, at least I give it my best shot. And then I say there's that third kind of person who does whatever it takes. Nobody understands. I, I can't say nobody. The majority don't understand what I mean when I say whatever it takes. So uh, that's what I see out there today is a lot of people coming in wanting to be big WWE superstars, not understanding that, uh, you know, the whatever it takes entails entails a lot. More, more than they can ever imagine, I think. And uh, do you think, uh, now we'll definitely be covering, you know, what you've done uh, with the WWE, but do you think, you know, or you, I should really say, did you see that becoming the be-all, end-all for somebody trying to get into the wrestling business, that it was just to make it to the WWE while you were in the system, you know, and while you were uh, getting those guys groomed and ready to be on TV, did you see that that's where it was going to go, that people would just be going for a singulary company at the end of the day? Well, that to, at the end of the day, especially today, really in in all practical uh, practicality, we'll say that the only place you're really going to make a living is WWE. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be part time or or uh, looking for something to supplement your income. TNA is great, Ring of Honor is great if you if you want to stay connected to the business. But the reality is, if you want to uh, make any kind of real living. And when I say real living, that means this is all you do. It's WWE. And a lot of guys, well, again, I think most of the guys these days, not everyone wants to go to WWE, I found out. But the majority of guys do want to go to WWE. I've talked to kids who, who've been in the camp who, who, who want to go to Ring of Honor. Uh, they, they don't want to be on that big stage. You know, they're, they're happy doing what they're doing. And that's fine. That's great. Um, but do you, if you're gonna if you're gonna pursue this even as a part time hobby, uh, my feeling is you should be as good as you can and uh, uh, have passion for it. Love what you're doing. Put everything you have into it. Don't go in there with the attitude of uh, I'm a, I'm gonna half ass it or I'm a big star. You should uh, let me do all my big moves. Learn everything you can about it, and then have fun. But if you if you are looking to go to WWE in all earnest and, and seriousness, uh, take it seriously and, and 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 don't take no for an answer. I always said if I could pursue my dreams because I had no connections, I wasn't uh, uh, brought up in the wrestling business. But I, I at 12 years old I started taking pictures and worked my way into the wrestling business because I was this was all I could see myself doing. There was nothing else I wanted to do with my life. Nowadays, the kids don't realize what it takes to get to the Performance Center now or WWE. Um, and I say the kids, the majority is what I'm talking about. They talk a great game, but they don't always uh, put forth the effort. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. But if we can rewind a little bit here and, and talk about the late 70s, and you basically uh, debuted, I believe, in 1979, but a little bit before that, your actual training. 
what was it like training under the Iron Sheik? From afar, it would seem like, man, I don't know how much of a good uh, wrestling trainer he would be. You know, he's a, he's, he's a little crazy. But what was it like training under the Iron Sheik? Well, once again, it was a different business. It was a different time. And real quick, uh, I don't want to get long-winded on this, but I started taking pictures uh, for wrestling magazines when I was 12 years old. And my brother, Ken, got me a meeting with a promoter in Houston who was Paul Bosch. And uh, he got me at ringside every Friday night and take pictures for uh, uh, for the magazines. I, I took pictures for Gong Magazine and Wrestling News. And um, there was another Norm Keiter and Jim Melby wrestling magazine back in the eight, uh, 70s. Excuse me. And eventually, after every Friday night, and I would tell Paul I wanted to be a wrestler, and Paul kept telling me, you're too small. Go to college, get an education. I said, no, I want to be a wrestler. I'm going to be a wrestler. And eventually, as time went on, uh, you know, being at the matches every Friday night, one thing led to another. Uh, I worked my way into being a second, taking the jackets back, into being a referee on the spot shows, and then eventually working at the Houston Wrestling Office during the summers. And every Friday afternoon, Gary Hart was the booker at that time, and he would come in uh, uh, Friday morning or Friday afternoon before the show to Paul's office and go over the matches. And he would bring uh, one of the boys with him, and, and while Paul and Gary were doing business, you know, the guys would maybe go grab lunch and then come back. And one day, one week, there was a, a football player who wanted to break into wrestling. So Gary brought the Iron Sheik, who was wrestling at that time as Muhammad Farouk. He brought he brought uh, the Sheik with him, and I always brought workout gear and carried it in my car just in case. Uh, and on this Friday afternoon, Paul looked at me and said, "You can go with him." And it was me, the Sheik, and the football player. They actually needed me to drive him to the Coliseum, uh, and and we went to the Coliseum. Uh, with the ring already set up in this huge, huge place. And we go in the dressing room, and she gets me his uh, amateur singlet, and I get my shorts and shoes, and, and the football players dress me shorts and shoes. And, and it was, uh, we got to the ring, and I'm thinking we're going to learn how to tackle, grab a headlock, and, and all the, the pro stuff I've seen, because I don't know anything about amateur wrestling. But uh, Cosro got us and, and told us to get on, told me to get on all fours or uh, he got on all fours, that's what it was, and told me to turn him over. And uh, he's about 240, I'm buck 60, buck 70 at most, 16 years old. And I couldn't move the guy. He was solid. And then uh, the sheik says, okay, now you get on all fours. I'm going to turn you over. And within a split second, he had me on my stomach uh, and pulling up on my my neck in some hole I still to this day don't know what it was and it's telling me to scream, scream. And I screamed, man. I was screaming at an empty coliseum and uh I screamed like a bitch. He made me humble, that's for sure. So uh he did he did the same thing to the football player and then he was teaching us how to lock up and uh he told us where to put up my left hand um around his neck, my right hand on his elbow. And when we went to lock up I slapped him in the ear by accident, and uh, he slapped the dog. He, he slapped the dog crap out of me on that one too. He was a, he was a good wrestling coach, I guess, for that time and era because they weren't really giving you lessons. It was pretty much just stretching you to see if you would come back. And the football player came back one 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 more week. He lasted two weeks, and after that, he said to hell with it. He didn't he didn't care for that too much. 
uh, pretty much he was teaching us respect to see if we, we really wanted to do this because in the 70s, uh, everybody's, it was still real. You know what I mean? Uh, and you had to respect it. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the guy didn't didn't go for that too much. So I trained with, uh, I think, Sheik maybe two more months or two months. So it was Fridays every time we would come with Gary, and that was about it. And it was basically just getting stretched. And uh, the way you really learned the business back then was by doing and wrestling every night. And that's pretty much how I, uh, uh, once once I trained with uh, the Sheik for a little bit and I got to break in with Nick Kozak and another guy, Joe Mercer in Texas, too. They had a ring in their record service. And Nick was a referee for Paul and a former wrestler. And and once uh, the Sheik left the territory, I started working out with them. Yeah, you know, and and eventually they ran a show uh, with Ernie Shavers on it, and uh, uh, so it went from there, man. Uh, you know, from the Iron Sheik training to Nick and Joe training, and some of the guys who were just hanging around Houston doing some some outlaw wrestling stuff. You know, uh, it was different in the seventies because you you had to know somebody who knew somebody to break in. I think just as it was my persistence. And being around all the time, that Paul finally said, "Let's go ahead and give you a shot," and and that's pretty much how it happened. Now, as we you know move a little bit forward in your career through the a little bit through the '80s, you were in the CWS, um, a couple time multi or multi time champion, I believe, three time world champ. You had some memorable feuds with uh, guys like the Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony, and so on. But then we move on to the USWA. And you're with Tojo Yamamoto and a guy that a lot of people are very familiar with, and that's Steve Austin. Did you see a lot in Steve Austin back then when you guys were in a stable together? You know, you could tell that Steve was going to be somebody. He was going to be a top guy. Nobody, and I don't think, I think they would be lying to you if they said, oh, yeah, you saw him as this this groundbreaking superstar and broke all records. Um, no, Steve had talent, and he was certainly somebody uh, just waiting to be molded. When I first saw him, a stunning Steve Austin, he had the long stringy hair and a, a, a red robe, white boots, and the bike shorts. It just, to me, didn't resonate. Um, but but you knew he was, uh, he was a lump of clay that somebody was going to mold, and they did. Uh, at the same time, Steve came to understand who he was and and who Stone Cold Steve Austin became is is that guy uh from the very beginning. I mean he's he's a redneck from Texas who likes to drink beer. And he can kick your ass if he if he wants to, but he's an easy going guy. He's a great, great person. Uh and he loves the business. He had a passion and he had um and he had talent and he and he, and he had a thirst to know. And he wasn't sure what he what he he needed to do, but but he he did you know. <laughs> there's a there's a time when we were riding down the road, and I didn't know that he, Steve even remembered this, but he but he said it on on a couple of occasions. I was riding with him and Brian Lee, and uh, I don't know where it came from. We were talking, and I asked Brian. I said, "What is so prime time about Brian Lee? Why do you call yourself prime time Brian Lee? I don't get it." And then I, I looked at Steve and said, I don't get stunning Steve Austin. You know, I, I mean, you got a great body, you're, you're a tough guy, but I don't see stunning Steve Austin. So, you know, we got in that conversation. And, and Steve mentioned that uh, that's, that's one thing that got him thinking. 
uh, the correlation between a name and, and the persona and, and who you are. And, and it, it's true. Um, you can't call yourself tough Tony Bourne if you're not tough. Uh, you can't call yourself gorgeous. Well, you can, but, I mean, you have to. It, it all has to, to fit together. It has to make sense. It has to mean something. Uh, and Steve had talent. He was just waiting for that moment. And when he got that moment, man, he uh, he took full advantage of it. Oh, yeah, boy, did he ever. Now, in the, yeah. USWA, in the USWA with you specifically, I mean, you were multi-time champion, you were a tag champion, but a guy you feuded with there that obviously is making a lot of headlines lately is Jeff Jarrett. Did you see a lot in him then as well? And um, have you seen the, um, the big mark on the business that he's making right now? Well, I, I always liked Jeff, uh, and I always had really good matches with Jeff. Um, and he came from a wrestling family. He came from a guy who was still in the business when most guys had already folded. So that's talent in itself that Jerry Jarrett was was able to to survive when others couldn't. And Jeff, um, Jeff is a smart guy. He's a real smart guy. And uh, he he understands the business. Um, I, I didn't see this. I didn't see him uh, doing TNA. I didn't I didn't give TNA a year, and they've been in been in existence what twelve years now, thirteen years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how long? Okay, whatever it is. Yeah, and uh, yeah. what thirteen? Okay. Yeah. Well, so I I didn't see him doing that. That was a different model. When, <laughs> excuse me, when they started out with just pay per views. Um, but I give him credit. Uh, you know he. he went outside the box and started not not one company, but two companies. So um, congratulations and kudos go to Jeff. Uh, I think the, the result, end result remains to be seen. But, but man, you know, I, I'm not going to count him out yet. Um, uh, and I always thought he was talented in the ring. I always did. That, that's something. He was one of those guys um, like a Brad Armstrong that, that I just clicked with when I got in the ring, and, and that was always fun to work with. Now, also in the USWA, you had a tag team partner that would become very uh, familiar with you, or very synonymous with you, and that was uh, Jimmy Del Rey. What was it like meeting him at, at that point? I guess that was, I guess you guys were tag team champs there. But what was it like when you first interacted with him? Well, uh, Jimmy and I were two different kind of guys. He, um, uh, he, he was by circumstance that, he, he came to be my partner when Stan had uh, pretty much decided to, uh, uh, he wanted to pursue other avenues. And when Jimmy came on board, I mean, uh, we got along fine, but I, I was one of those guys who liked to go in and uh, if we went out, I didn't like to cause a lot of uh, commotion. You know what I mean? I, I, I wanted to be, commotion to come to me if it's going to come to me, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to invite trouble. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yep. Jimmy was just the opposite. He had to let everybody know we were there and that's, that's good and bad. And so, uh, <clears throat> there were a couple of occasions where we just, we decided, look, uh, we'll work together, but, uh, outside the ring, we'll go our different ways. And we did. And later on last year, actually, it, um, at Fan Fest in Charlotte, we re- we got back together and we talked about old times, and uh, you know we just we had a lot going on in, in both of our lives. You know, I had uh, 
I had stuff, he had stuff. <laughs> and um we never we never really talked about it. But uh he was just a different kind of guy. I was a different kind of guy too. I wasn't always easy to get along with either. But I mean I thought we worked well in the ring. It's just outside the ring, uh he had his way of doing things and I had mine. And and who's to say which one was uh uh I don't think it was a right or wrong, I just think it was this way and that way. Right. And well I'll definitely get back to uh Jimmy in a little bit, but first I just want to talk about your intro into Smoky Mountain Wrestling, obviously with James E. Cornette, the infamous Jim Cornette. Now, when you started with the Heavenly Bodies, obviously you were, you were with uh, Sweet Stan Lane, but what was that partnership like, like first getting to Smoky Mountain, working with Cornette again, and then uh, working alongside of Stan Lane? Well, uh, the deal was when, when Jimmy called me in, uh, Jimmy had just left uh, WCW and Bobby had stayed because he was off the contract and he had a family to feed and he had things to take care of and uh, Stan and Jimmy had both had enough of uh, the management over there so it was a great opportunity for me and Stan was was a laid back guy, a funny guy and he was kind of like me in the sense that you know if we, if we went out you know let's, let's just kind of be cool and see what happens but uh, you know Let's not invite trouble. We're going to get enough trouble as it is, it seems. Uh, but but I got along great with Stan. And, uh, and let me reiterate, I got along great with Jimmy, too. It's just that, that we had two different styles uh, outside the ring. And Stan was more kind of like a, you know, laid back and let's have fun and uh, don't, don't, don't uh, push the issue if we don't have to type guy, you know. And uh, it, was, it was a really, really good time. Up until I think Stan was getting to the point where it's, it wasn't as fun for him anymore, and he was coming from Charlotte, having to make these Tennessee towns and all the stuff up by Knoxville and things like that. So, uh, but he was a great guy, man. I, I got along great with Stan. He was, one, he was one of my favorite people to be around in the ring and out of the ring. And we've interviewed uh, Kane before, and we were talking about Smoky Mountain with him. We interviewed. Uh, Balls Mahoney, we're talking about Smoky Mountain. We talked to Bobby Blaze. We talked to uh, Ricky and Robert. But what were your thoughts on that territory? Did you enjoy your time with Smoky Mountain? See, I did. I did enjoy my time. We It was at that time when business was really changing, and we sure as hell didn't make a lot of money and sure as hell didn't get rich. But I, I give all the credit in the world to Jim Cornette uh, for taking that plunge and for going the extra mile to even try and open a territory at that time. Jimmy believed there was still a place and a market for wrestling, you know, the way it used to be and the way you like it, um, you know, in his eyes. And and there might have been, but the times were changing and uh, uh, it, it wasn't going to last. But it, if it wasn't for Smoky Mountain and if it wasn't for Jim Cornette, uh, not myself, Jimmy, or Kane, for that matter, um, and even Ricky and Robert, and whoever else got a shot at WWF at that time, you know, it was because of Smoky Mountain. It was because of Jim Cornette. And they can say what they want, but I I know the backstory on that, and that's what happened. So once they got there, what what was going to be was up to them. Uh, Kane made the most of it. He had the talent. He had the, everything they were looking for in a superstar, and, and and he's proved himself. In fact, he, you know, Kane still lives in Knoxville. And, uh, but, but my time in Smoky Mountain was, along with, uh, 
uh, Pensacola had to be the favorite, most two most favorite times in uh, my career. And then you shift back in Smoky Mountain, and you start teaming with Gigolo, Jimmy Del Rey again, and you know you guys obviously become the new Heavenly Bodies, uh, so to speak. You know, with obviously Doctor Tom Cornette and uh, Gigolo Jimmy. And one of the biggest feuds you guys had, as we just uh, talked about a little bit, was with Ricky Roberts, the Rock and Roll Express. Awesome, awesome feud you guys had. Did you feel the chemistry, and it, was it cool to be able to not only wrestle in Smoky Mountain, but also bring that feud to WCW and also bring that feud to the WWF? It was very cool. And, and again, that was it was right at the beginning, um, and, and Jimmy and I were clicking in the ring, we were clicking at the buildings, and... and and, and knew what we had to do. And Ricky and Robert were just incredible. And they, they had already been on the main stage and, and they understood timing. They understood, uh, they understood all, all of it. And it really helped. Uh, we had that chemistry with, uh, Cornette, you know, the backstory, but going to WWF at that time with, with the match and, uh, in fact, I think it was survivor series in Boston for the Smoky Mountain championship. We went in, and we thought we had a great match, man. We had it all lined up, laid out, and we knew what we were going to do. And they just crapped on the match. I mean, it was it was that Southern-style match, and we were in the northern part of the country, and they let us know it, man. And say what you want, but there is a difference in the fans, between the fans in the north and the south. So I, I can't explain it. And maybe, and maybe I'm just, maybe it's just my perception, but, um, man, Boston Garden hated that. It just it appeared to hate it. We felt the hate, but it sure as hell didn't feel the love, but it was cool working with them, man. Everywhere else we worked with them. Uh, I thought we had a great, uh, great matches. Great, great feud. And they're obviously one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And then you, you miss you guys in there as well, who are just awesome. And the chemistry was great. Obviously, I think you are right on that. The Southern fans are a little bit different. Uh, I kind of like the Southern style better. I think sometimes the Northern fans think they're a little bit too smart, but uh, it's a different opinion for a different day. But as I uh, continue on, you guys also had a really cool uh, few matches with uh, the Fantastics. You guys had a feud. You guys had a feud with uh, Tracy Smothers and Tony Anthony. And then one team that I wanted to bring up was you guys wrestled the Thrill Seekers a lot. Do you see a lot in Lance Storm? And uh, Chris Jericho at that point. Yeah, uh, they were young. They they had that fire. There's there's that undeniable fire, and uh, both those guys, you you could tell uh, they loved what they were doing. I mean, they they were they were excited. You know, they came from Canada and and they're down here in the south, and they're getting wrestled pretty much on a regular basis. But I, I think the the newness wore up pretty quick for them too, and. Uh, yeah, but uh, you you could tell they they really had that spark, and uh, they had the talent. That's for sure. Hey, I'm sure you've seen the match where Jericho bleeds like a stuck pig. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, that that takes a lot of the backstory with that, where he's practicing the uh, shooting star press and he breaks his arm before the match. And uh, we had interviews for five weeks already laid out. And, uh, you know, he, he should have gone to the hospital. He should have got a cast. I think he put it in the cast. But, uh, you know, he, instead of just saying, no, I can't work tonight, he went out and not only worked, but he, he, he just he made the match, in my opinion. So both those guys had the passion, dedication, and uh, uh, they did whatever it took to uh, 
to get the kit what they wanted in wrestling. Again, kudos to both of them, man. And Jericho is an entertainment uh, juggernaut, I guess, man. He's he got his hands on being a game show host, rock and roll star. He can do it all. Without a doubt, yeah. And he got his uh, his first big American break down at Smoky Mountain with you. Now, it's actually funny as we're moving forward to the WWF, but quickly about that time, like you said, it was five weeks of television that were already laid out in Smoky Mountain when he had that accident. And uh, Jim Cornette, he said that it was like a, uh, you know, mass panic to kind of get those five weeks leading into the Christmas chaos show all uh, settled. But do you remember what it was like, you know, to kind of reformat, I guess, where you were going with the direction at that point? I I really don't. I don't remember how much panic was there. I do remember when uh, uh, somebody told me he broke his arm, and I thought, yeah, right. And then then he did. He broke his arm. I thought, oh, man, well, this is going to prove how we can – how how professional we can really pull this one off tonight. You know, it was – it was so there was there was so much chaos going on at the time, uh, but I think because we were right in the middle of it and just had to get it done, I didn't pay that much attention to how um, hectic. Like I realized later that Jim was a one man show. Jim Cornette was really a one man show. He had he had uh, Brian Hildebrand and uh, Casey O'Connor helping him on some things with the promotion and street teams, things like that. But it was really Jim writing TVs, writing out things that he wanted done and, and announcer notes. I mean, that's a lot of effort. And it, it's time-consuming. Plus, on top of everything else he, he had to do to make things uh, click and, and to get, uh, get stories on TV, get guys to the towns and, and be responsible, get the ring to the town. I mean, there was the little things that... Um, I'm sure we're we're pressing and panicked and and wondering, oh my God, are we even gonna have a, a ring there tonight? But being in the middle of it, I just figured everything was gonna work out, and uh, for the most part, it did. I mean, it really, really did. And I think that goes back to just when you're going through hell, just keep on going, and that's what we did. And it wasn't like hell back then. It was just we were having a great time, and and like I said, we were sure as hell we weren't getting rich, but we were sure. Uh, doing what we wanted to do and 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 still wrestling and uh loving every minute of it. The uh the exact quote was it was like a Chinese fire drill is what uh John Cornette said <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> it, it probably was and, and and I'm sure there were a lot of times, you know, just showing up and, and saying, Oh, okay, well let's make let's let's make it work. You know, it, it it's not supposed to but we're gonna make it work. And we did. Without a doubt. Now talk about if you can when you were kind of approached about doing the full WWF uh, Smoky Mountain run, because you did your brief stint in WCW, uh, as John mentioned before, but then with the WWF, it was a much longer uh, tenure, I guess, uh, with the Smoky Mountain banner alongside you before they kind of removed that. But uh, how were you approached about that, and what were your thoughts? Um, well, it was supposed to be just a one-shot deal, and then they, they brought us back uh, for Survivor Series. Or, uh, yeah, SummerSlam, then Survivor Series. And and I think that was supposed to be it, but then the uh, the trial was going on, and and uh, it was during the time. See, I don't know if a whole lot of people remember uh, it was 1993 what was going, what was going down because, uh, you know, I, I tried to forget. Uh, but... Yeah. 
you know, it was it was a way it was a way to get talent, and I knew that, and I knew when they hired us or, or wanted us to come up, they were really looking at Cornette to manage Yokozuna, the American spokesperson spokesman for Yokozuna, yeah, because Jerry Jarrett was up here at the time, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, they weren't sure what was going to happen with with the trial and all events. So while all this is going on, they had to secure some kind of talent, some kind of uh, uh, outlet to get talent, and Smoky Mountain was a viable commodity. I mean, uh, and, and Jim was talented, and they finally talked Jim to moving to Connecticut and going up there, and uh, if you've talked to him, then I'm sure he's told you how he felt about that, and, and that's pretty much how it uh, how it went down. I, I only thought it was for a couple shots. In fact, that's kind of what was told to me. And then it, it just became more and more, and there were more guys who came from Smoky Mountain and had an opportunity and had a shot. And that was, again, thanks to Jim Cornette throwing their name in the hat. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I can't complain about that time. It was, again, it was an opportunity. But uh, going back to my attitude, not being the easiest guy to get along with sometimes, you know, I had things going on in my life that uh, I probably should have should have not paid as much attention to. But, you know, it was a great time either way. We were going places and uh, getting paid to see the world. I mean, I have nothing to complain about. <laughs> and what better way to get indoctrinated into the uh, WWF than to be facing the Steiners at your first <laughs> uh, event, which was SummerSlam uh, 1993. Uh, what are your memories of your match with Rick and uh, Scotty, uh, the Steiner brothers, in their hometown? Yeah, well, see, I didn't know those guys at all, and and I'd always heard they they could be moody at times. So, you know, Jimmy and I are thinking, oh Christ, and you know, yeah, we're in Detroit, and uh, they're they're working with us, and and these guys aren't going to like it too much, and I'm not sure how they're going to feel, you know. So we go in, and and of course they got to rib us and and start with the uh, uh, comments in the dressing room, like. Uh, they, we had to do a beat down of them one night, and they were acting like they didn't like it, and they were pissed off, and we're going, oh, Jesus, it's going to just suck. And But but in the end, it didn't suck because they were, they were pros and they were good guys, and uh, they knew, man, it's, it's business, and <laughs> that's no time to go out there, especially in your hometown, and try and uh, try to be a tough guy. Well, I mean, they could have been a tough guy. They could have done anything they wanted. But but honestly, uh, they, were, they were pros, both of them. So. I mean, it, yeah. it was a cool time. Yeah, it was very cool. So, and both I, matches I, are very good, too. I'm sorry to cut you off, but both matches are very good, the SummerSlam 93 and the Survivor Series match, uh, which you mentioned. But that Steiners one was definitely, like, you know, in the hometown, it was definitely a uh, uh, heat-seeking spot to jump into. Yeah, and, and, and once again, we wanted it to be good. They wanted it to be good. It was their hometown, and uh, their their family was going to be there, and, and why not? So they knew we were there to make them to have a good match, and that's what we wanted to do. So, and then you know, I know we've kind of beaten the Survivor Series match into the ground, but one more question about it, if I can, and that is, uh, what was uh, Vince's reaction? Oh no, Vince was in a part. So who was Matt, who was really in charge of the show? Because Vince was, I think, on co- was he on commentary still at that point? But what was the perception I, of I this believe- being in the North? Well, see, man, I I, I think. The guys knew what we were trying to do. The boys knew. But see, most of the boys had been there for a while, too, and they understood Boston, and they understood that that crowd, and they understood the vibe. 
and and we really <laughs> we, we 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 didn't really know. I guess it was just from what I can remember, we didn't really. I, I had a feeling there was a difference in the north and south crowd, uh, but until we got in there and we just uh, started doing these southern spots, and that's the only way I can describe it because a southern wrestling match at that time uh, against the WWF wrestling match or performance or whatever they call it now, um, uh, sports entertainment match, was was, uh, not as spotty, I guess. We did a lot of spots. We did a lot of... uh, you know <laughs> the southern spots that we did the rock and roll um and not express spots you know it was just uh for two different guys and then Bobby and Dennis and Bobby and Stan and uh but we did the the tag spots you know the I don't think we did the Tennessee tiptoe spot in Boston but we should have they deserved <laughs> it. uh but we but we did the turnbuckle spot you know where where you shoot the guy in I sit on my ass and shoot Jimmy and his ass hits my face and out for a hip toss, monkey flip. You know, just just the stuff that we did normally in Smoky Mountain. And and they said, like, ah, oh, bull. You know, so, I mean, they gave it to us, and that was, but that's Boston, man. They they either love you or they hate you. And the same thing, Madison Square Garden. You know, they just, I mean, it was booing like, ah, oh, get out, you stink. Not booing like we were booing the, because that's what we're supposed to do. It's like, no, nah, they didn't care for us, but. But that's all right too. That's that's cool. It's also the uh, the final uh, pay per view or big time event to be held at the original Boston Garden. But you know we have we've actually failed to even say it so far. But you know of course your brother uh, Bruce Pritchard, longtime WWF uh, mainstay in the office. Um, and I guess when you got there finally, what was your initial impressions of working for Vince McMahon? Um. Well. You know, it's uh, one of those things that uh, you're, any anybody who comes to WWF the first time, uh, I would think would have to be intimidated because it's it's walking backstage is like uh, somewhere you've never been before. It's, it's WWE, especially now. Uh, if you go the first time, you've never experienced anything like that because there's only one. Uh, WWE environment. It's I've I've been to concerts and and I've seen pyro, and I've seen some cool stuff and I've been backstage, but nothing is like the WWE in back then WWF environment. It's uh, every everybody's working together to make this the, the show click. So when you meet Vince, and I'd already met Vince on a couple of occasions, just really varied myself. Uh, Unintentionally, of course, but I mean that's just what I have seen to have a habit of doing. Um, you know, it was just uh, how can I say this? We knew we weren't in the uh, the click or the crew. We were we were there, but he had his ideas, and he didn't see us as superstars. Which is once again, we were glad to be on the card, but. Uh, in order to be a superstar, to be a main guy, you have to be involved. And and Jim was involved uh, up to a point, and then they took him away from us and, and put him with uh, Yokozuna, and then he was on the creative team. And his hand, he could only do so much. And Bruce is the same way. He could only do so much. And you can't, you know, when you have somebody involved like that too, it makes it sometimes uh, 
I don't know if it's harder or if it's just you have to be more cognizant of the fact that uh, you can't keep going to somebody and say, hey, what about us? What about us? You know, but but you have to have somebody on your side, somebody who wants to uh, book you and put you there. I'll never forget one of the first TVs we did. We thought we had a great match with, with uh, enhancement talent. And the next night, someone came to me and said, uh, came to me and Jimmy and said, Pat wants to talk to you guys. And we're thinking, oh, good. That's going to tell us what a great match we had. Oh, no. We were terrible. We, we didn't know what we were doing. Why did we just beat the guys up? Well, why did we do what we did? And we tried to tell him, and he just shook his head and just pretty much buried us. So from then on, it was like, uh, all right, well, what do we have to do different? So we tried, but uh, we got what we got. You know, it was, and, it was an also, intimidating experience. It was yeah, it was an intimidating experience for the first uh, first year or two we were there because we, we everything we did it seemed to be wrong. So now I was actually in attendance at uh, WrestleMania 10. Obviously, it wasn't on the pay per view, but you guys had a match with the Bushwhackers, who I guess you quote unquote dark match. What was it like being a part of WrestleMania, especially a big one like WrestleMania 10 at MSG? No, I got, that was very cool. I mean, it was it was the first time uh, in the garden and and being backstage and then opening the show like that. So uh, while you're right, it wasn't on the card, but it was it was still on the show, and it, it was it was very cool. I can't discount that at all because anytime, once again, you know, I was told I was too small, I'll never wrestle, I'll never do any of this stuff, and much less wrestle in Madison Square Garden, and to be a world tag team champion, regardless. It's a work, yes, sure it is. But at the same time, uh, just to be able to do that and be able to be part of that was uh, was a cool experience. So, yeah, I won't uh, I won't say that wasn't anything but but a pretty cool thing. Because there are there are some people who can say uh, they they haven't wrestled the Madison Square Garden, and and unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, yeah, definitely awesome to be there and I actually have a really cool picture of the heavenly bodies because I was like I think 17 or 18 rows back so I got a nice picture that my dad took that day so I always have that cool uh, memory there but did you enjoy as we move forward a little bit here but did you enjoy when they made you cut your hair you know the classic Tom Pritchard look with long hair and they made you cut the short hair and they made you you know be blonde and then you become the body Donna did you enjoy that it almost kind of goes against it yeah, not not at all. Not one bit. No, I didn't. It was terrible. It sucked. And, uh, no, I didn't enjoy it. I did it um, because there was an option. Uh, either have a job or don't have a job. And uh, I love Chris. Um, and I, I like being around Chris, but that was about the only thing. But as far as cutting the hair of Donna Blonde, every second, it was terrible. It, it was a great opportunity. Uh, at the same time, uh, it was a miserable, it was a miserable existence, man. So, but short answer and bottom line is no, didn't like it at all. It's funny um, if you really look at that team. Obviously, the body dominant, and you had Sonny as well. But if you really look at the team, obviously you're a good worker. And then you look at Chris Candido, and you're like, man, this guy's a good worker. Why are they skipped and zipped the body dominant? You know, you know what I mean? It's very uh, sports entertainment ish, but so like um almost like obnoxiously corny did you think that it was you know a little bit of a of a weird gimmick to give two really good wrestlers um certainly 
And the reason they did it is because they could. You'd be surprised that how many things you would look at and say, why are they doing that? What? That makes no sense. And it's the only reason, the only explanation is because we can. And uh, so, you know, it, the, the, after after being there for a long time, you know, you look at some things and you say, hmm, why is that? And that can't be that petty. They can't be that, that ridiculous. And then you come to find out, oh, yeah, it is that petty. It is that ridiculous. So um, while I have nothing <laughs> nothing negative to say, uh, I, I some of the, sometimes you think, are they really doing that just because? Well, sometimes they are really doing that just because. Yeah, it's definitely strange. I feel like sometimes it's just that like, has an ego trip or whoever is, you know, writing it has an ego trip. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, make this guy look bad or make that like guy look bad. Well, let me ask you this. Do you remember when Jericho won the belt, oh, excuse me, the championship or the title, and he was picking up dog crap? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. weird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go back and look at that. And you, ask, you would ask yourself, why? Wait, you just won the title. Well, yeah, you just won the title, but we're going to show you that we can do whatever we want you to do. I mean, it it is what it is, and I, I hate that phrase, but it's the only way to explain things sometimes uh, because there's there's no other explanation. Um you know, why would you make somebody go out and do this ridiculous gimmick? You know, all they have to do is say no. I mean, yeah, right, and just say no. Yeah, well, you won't be on TV, or or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, and I don't know if it's an ego trip or if it's to show you that we, we can make you do what we want or we can, we can do this because we know you will. And, uh, you know, that's been a sign of discontent uh, with a lot of guys, and, and a source of discontent, I guess, with a lot of guys. So, uh, yeah. You know, you just, uh, by what you just said about, you know, not calling the uh, the belt a title or whatever, that crazy memo that was uh, published this week, the internal document that had all of the amendments to what should be said by the announcers and what shouldn't be said, uh, I guess just as being you know, such a, an old-school guy like you are. What are your thoughts on uh, just, I guess, the, the crazy uh, amendments put in by management uh, to the announcers? Like, I know you can run your company a certain way, but changing the wording in an announcer's mouth, do you think that that's really uh, kind of hurting the integrity of the in-ring product? Well, I don't know necessarily hurting the integrity, but I but I do know that there's WWE does have some very smart and talented people running things. Now, um, at the same time, you do get caught in the bubble uh, a lot of times, where, where you you can't really see or hear anything except what you what you're allowed to see or hear, and um, you know just by by making changes. Just just because you you stayed the same for so long, that can be good no matter if it's a, a, a small change, and that's 
whatever the, the words they couldn't say on TV, and I don't remember what they were. But I know he's certainly, you don't talk about a belt because a belt's what you buy at J.C. Penney's. It's a championship. It's a title. Okay, I, I understand that point. But Vince and, and the powers that be, whoever it may be, and, and Michael Hayes has, has a lot of influence. In the, I think Michael's severely underrated as far as what he's done for uh, for talent and for what he's done for the company. Uh, but, but sometimes, you know, you get stuck in that groove and that bubble week in and week out that you can't really hear or see anything else uh, because you're involved. I mean, that's a 24-7 job. So when it comes to uh, making your product new and different, you know, who do you look to for that? Who who do you, what outside sources do you get to see? What outside outside uh, voices do you hear? Um, so, so, I mean, I don't know if the verbiage is that important, but I believe the verbiage is very important um, in telling stories, and that's what they do every week is they tell stories. Uh, the talent is obviously the most important thing, and... Um, you know, it's up to up to the guys to uh, tell the stories, and we have your storytellers and Michael Cole and uh, Saxton now and uh, John Bradshaw Layfield. And if, if Vince wants it that way and it works, then great. But if Vince wants it that way and it doesn't work, then well, then somebody has to tell the emperor that things aren't working. And who's going to be the guy to do that? Hmm. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I, I wasn't I wasn't very happy about the fact that it was leaked out. I, I voiced my uh, my concerns about that to my partner that uh, I just don't like when an internal document gets out, but it is very crazy nonetheless to read those uh, amendments. It seems like the ones dated are just a little, uh, it's just a little out there. Yeah. I, and, and I agree that, no, I, I agree that documents and, and things like that don't need to be leaked. It really, except for just people who want to know what's going on. I, I get that part, but also I, I don't really see the point in, uh, in leaking it. I mean, I really don't, but be that as may. Yeah, exactly. But let's move ahead if we can now. Let's talk about you as a trainer and as a coach. And there's this guy, I can't seem to remember his name, who you helped train uh, in 1996. He went on to do a couple things. Oh, his name was Dwayne Johnson. Oh, Malcolm Albright. Oh, I'm going to tell it all right. Okay. Yeah. Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, no, no, all uh, right. No, go right ahead. Tell us uh, no, first impression. No, no, Dwayne you go. Johnson. You go ahead. I was, yeah, I was interrupting you on Dwayne Johnson, but go ahead with what you were going to say, man. My fault. <laughs> no, man. No, it's, what were your uh, what were your thoughts about uh, Dwayne Johnson coming in and uh, what he had when he came to the table with the lineage of his family and what Doctor Tom was able to teach him? I don't know that I was able to teach him that much. He came in August and he debuted in October, man, and he'd been in Memphis for a year. And we just trained and we worked out for at that time with Occam and uh, Mark Henry. Uh, he was a guy, a young kid, uh, great guy, had the chia pet haircut, and you knew he had talent. Once again, you couldn't tell, no one could tell at that time that he was going to be as big as he is today. Uh, but he had personality. Um, you know, to go over his finish, I, I gave him the uh, shoulder breaker. Well, that was terrible. So, I mean, I can't, I can't take credit for that. But we, I worked uh, some of his first matches on the road. Um, worked with him in, in the uh, warehouse in the ring on a daily basis. And 
it, he had that charisma, he had that personality. Uh, but once again, you know, you looked at him, and he's here's a smiling, good-looking guy, good-looking kid, uh, with the chia pet haircut, coming out and and want everybody to cheer for me, yay, yay, yay. Well, that was kind of like we were coming out wanting people to, to hate us and like us all at the same time. It just didn't work. The people, you know, were, were revolting against that typical babyface guy back then, and and it was to his advantage because he knew and he understood once it was once it was explained to him, once he got the feel of it, once he got to be who he really is, was that smart aleck, you know, come back with a comment kind of guy. Um, that really gave him a, a, a platform. You know, I had no idea that he his his goal in life was to be the the performer, or the actor that he is. Uh, but but I mean, he got that stage. He got the stage in, in wrestling, and and that's how the people who made the Mummy movie saw him. And uh, um, gosh, man, he was always an entertaining guy, always a likable guy, always uh, fun to be around. Now, another guy that you uh, were a huge part of training, and he kind of became a big deal as well, was Kurt Angle. Did you see a lot in him, especially with his uh, amateur background and his Olympic gold? Actually, yeah, man. Kurt, uh, the first time I locked up with him, I, I told him before we locked up, Kurt, I have nothing to prove, so don't try and snatch me because I have nothing to prove to you, man. So, but first time we locked up, he was he was easy. He got it. He moved well, and uh, to me, he was a natural. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. But he was another guy who you just knew he had this drive, and he had this uh, work ethic. And uh, in fact, let me just say this about about Rock and Mark Henry both. They they both had the work ethic too. Uh, Brock is. Pockham Albrecht, he, he had work ethic. He just didn't have the uh, ability to grasp what this business is. So, uh, but Kurt grasped it right from uh, the beginning. He knew, he understood. It's like a practice scrimmage, you know, we're going out and we work hard, but we're not trying to uh, uh, actually, uh, we're working together. And that's a that's a real uh, conflict with most amateur wrestlers I've ever had because their instinct is to not get put on their back. And uh, Kurt grasped that idea from the first time we uh, we trained. It's funny if you really look at your like resume as far as training guys. It's pretty uh, heavy list. I mean. You throw in the Hardy Boys, who you had a hand in training. Edge, obviously you mentioned Mark Henry, the Bellas, I believe Dolph Ziggler. And then obviously the two big ones are The Rock and Kurt Angle. But is there anybody in particular that you say to yourself, man, I'm so proud I trained them, or do you kind of just put them all in the same grouping? You know, it wasn't – if I didn't have the opportunity uh, to do it in Stanford, then it would have been someone else. So I happen to be at the right place at the right time. Now, you have to ask them what they learned from me. All I know is I learned from, uh, I had a great teacher who went to karate named Bill Gray. And his his method of teaching, um, I feel like I had adapted and adopted as well. 
so you would have to ask those guys what they learned from me, and I, I would have to say I'm proud of all those guys, especially Rock and Angle. Uh, the Hardy Boys were self-taught before they came to me. So, I mean, and Ziggler uh, came to a tryout in OVW and then came from OVW to Tampa. Um, he Slater is another guy that I'm, I'm proud that he came from, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Georgia, uh, not Atlanta, right outside of it. McDonough, thank you, I'm trying to think of it. McDonough and, and the Deep South guys, Fandango, Johnny Curtis. I'm proud of all those guys that came through, and I'm proud if they if they took something away from what I either showed them or said to them, then more power to them and, and great. But I, I really have to give those guys credit. Edge and Christian, they started with a guy named Ron Hutchison, who uh, trained some pretty heavy guys himself. And then they came to, to the tryout in Stanford. And and whether we refine them or not, um, you know, they'll have to give you their their opinion on that. So I know that, that I got in the ring and taught what I knew to the guys. And uh, that goes for Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose, guys who grew up in the business. Seth Rollins, who was Ring of Honor champion. Ambrose has been around. Uh, uh, Rollins, uh, not Rollins, pardon me, um, Roman Reigns uh, grew up in the business, you know. So they they had something before they actually got to the to the system and got with me. But if I helped them uh, get farther than that, then great. I'm proud of them for that. And you'd have to ask them what they think about that. So because I hate to sit here and people say, "Well, yeah, you trained the Rock." The Rock man grew up in the business and he had it. Then he went to Memphis and was pretty much. Uh, uh, rounded off when he came to Stanford. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to take credit for it. I'd love to say it was just because of me, but that's not true. Now, obviously, in your career, I mean, you, we went through a lot of the training you did in Deep South and with WWF, and then, you know, uh, fought with Florida Champions Wrestling and all the guys that became big stars. But going back to you, you've wrestled in your career. I mean, we mentioned a lot of the tag team guys, but, I mean, you've wrestled. Brett, you've wrestled HPK, Sid, Austin, Angle, Rock, which we mentioned Jeff Jarrett, but do you have a favorite match or matches that you've had in your career? You know, any any match I had with Brad Armstrong uh, was my favorite match. And, uh, again, I, I did have some great matches with Jeff. Um, so uh, the, the Rock and Roll Express and the Fantastics and uh, I'll say Lance and uh, Jericho. Uh, but you know, it, yeah, I've, I've had I've had a lot of really good matches. I think, uh, and and but the favorite ones were the guys that I clicked with, and the ones that uh, you know you go out there. You didn't have to call anything in the back, and that's way too much today. I think uh, everybody walks through every move in their match, and that's that's what it looks like. Except you know, I have watched Raw on occasion where I've seen some matches that that are called in the ring. You can tell when what is happening uh, <clears throat> and you can tell when they're calling them the back. But but any time if you get in the ring and just, just go and we didn't have to uh didn't have to call it move for move, that was my favorite match. And uh Brad Armstrong could do that. Uh, rock and roll, Jeff, Jarrett, um man. So those were the matches I really liked. Would you say Brad is probably your favorite opponent of all time as well? I would say, I would say Brad is, yeah, certainly. I feel like he's a super underrated talent. I mean, a lot of people 
know the Armstrong name, obviously very great lineage and legacy with the name. And then Road Dog might be the most popular, but by far uh, Brad is probably the best wrestler of the bunch. Right. Well, Brian was certainly the best entertainer along with Bob. Uh, Brad had that, uh, yeah, he was a technical guy, but he was he was so smooth in the ring. It was uh, you, you you could anticipate each other's moves, and uh, that was after the first couple times we ever uh, <clears throat> excuse me worked together. So yeah, Brad was the uh, the smoothest uh, one of, of the whole family next to next to Bob, and then you have Brian and Scott and Steve. But um, yeah, as far as my favorite opponent, the guy that just uh, you know, we could go out there and we could do, I mean, we've done 30 minutes, we could do 10, 15, whatever you needed and, and not have to call it, not have to worry about it. And sometimes we wouldn't even have to say anything. And uh, I'd shoot him off the ropes and we'd just see what came next. I mean, that was the fun part about it, man. And that's what, that was, that was uh, what really used to be the most fun part about it is go out there and create something. And uh, somebody like Brad or even Jeff, uh, or the rock and roll, man. You didn't have to say a whole lot. You could go out and just uh, feel it. Now, with uh, you training down in Florida Championship Wrestling, one question that I really wanted to ask you was, obviously they put the, the Shield together, and they were all in um, FCW at the same time, and they spent a brief period in NXT as well. But it seemed like a- Ambrose was kind of a guy that they liked. Rollins was a guy that they were kind of like, yeah, he's he's pretty good, but not being smart to realize that he was by far the best of the three, I think. And then it was then there was Roman Reigns, who they were huge on. Obviously, the you know, family member of The Rock, and uh, he had the, maybe the best look out of all three of them, or you know, maybe they feel like he had the biggest upside. But what did you think about those three? Did you see them and think that Rollins was the best, like like I like I just said, or do you think that? they're correct in, in anointing Roman Reigns, like the, the next future star of the WWE. Well, once again, when uh, Ambrose got there, he was the most unique of the three, in my opinion. Uh, he had a mix of Terry Funk and Roddy Piper. Um, and, and he was he was the real deal. He, he, uh, he never let you in on, on what he was thinking, even in the dressing room or even in class or he, that that was the good part about him. He kept that mystery about him, even though you knew he was working. He he didn't tell you he was working. Um, and then Ambrose, uh, or Ambrose, pardon me, Rollins. Uh, he he had that cocksureness. He knew he was good, and he was good. He was great. He and Ambrose had uh, had their angle in FCW, and that was that was our top angle up until they went to the uh, performance center too. And you knew that uh, Roman Reigns was going to be great because he had the stock. He came from the stock they wanted. Now, the way it turned out, um, once again, you have to peel back the layers and you have to look at the uh, business end of things. How how did Seth Rollins get in that position? Uh, Seth's a smart guy. Ambrose is a smart guy, but I don't know if he's as good a politician as Seth Rollins is. And that's not taking any anything away from Seth, but you have to know how to play the game. You have to know who's who's running the game up there. So Seth Seth got in with the right um, people, and he has talent, and he had everything uh, going for him. Ambrose, I thought, was was very talented. There were some in FCW who didn't think he had the look, 
or the or the talent to be a top guy. They were all they were high on uh, Reigns from the start because, like you said, he had the had the family background. He had everything going for it. Uh, Rollins, or pardon me, Ambrose and, and uh, Rollins uh, were going to be bit players at, in FCW. That was the, uh, the take on them. But as things as time went on and uh, other factors came came into play, um, the shield came about, and uh, then he fractioned off into what they uh, became. It, it's funny just looking at it and, and thinking like, oh, WWE was really high on range, but it's almost like did they not realize Rollins is, is the best of the bunch? And uh, I think that then maybe Triple H or whoever finally realized, like, man, this guy, he, you know, he's he's it out of out of the three of them. I mean, maybe Reigns could grow into that role, but right now Rollins is the best guy in WWE. Well, I think it goes back to being in that bubble and who's going to be the one to break that through that bubble and say, hey, let me give you my opinion. Let me give you my take on things and, and give you a new spin on it and then, then look at it from a different angle. And I believe that that's what happened with uh, not only Reigns and and uh, Rollins and Ambrose, but a, with a few people. You know, because when you're when you're in that bubble every week and, and, and you know, you don't... You, you do you, the schedule. I mean, they fly out on Friday, do the shows, and Monday... Uh, Raw, Tuesday, SmackDown, Wednesday, they're back to writing again, and, and you just, that's that constant schedule. So um, it takes someone giving a new perspective to the, that the, the powers that be in the bubble and say, let's look at it like this, give it a chance, and uh, we'll see who the guy is. And I think that's what they did with Rollins. I think that's what they did with Rain and, uh, and Ambrose. Yeah, definitely. Now, if I could just go back to you for a second, and um, as we start to uh, wind it down a little bit here, obviously you've had a, a enormous career. You started in 19, you know, the late 1970s. You said you were taking pictures at ringside. You were a referee. You were a wrestler. You were a trainer, coach, producer. I mean, you name it, you've done it. And you also were actually, um, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, it's almost the prelude to the podcast, and you were involved in Bite This, um, with the WWE produced show, and so many aspects of the business that you've been involved in. I mean, just that is just a small sample. Obviously, a huge part has been the actual wrestling. But what's been your favorite aspect that you've been involved in, in the wrestling business? Was it, you know, the physical wrestling? Yeah, I think wrestling and uh, and training both, man. Um, because when it, when you're wrestling, it, you you got to go out and perform and and just worry about your match and. Uh, and, and it was the most fun I've had. But at, at, once I started training guys and the satisfaction uh, of seeing them succeed or, or breaking through uh, was a lot of fun, too, and a lot of uh, um, satisfaction on my part. So, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate to be able to do all the stuff I wanted to do. And... Uh, as I said earlier, I, I have nothing to complain about. I can I can probably complain all day long, but in reality, it's it's about absolutely nothing. Um, you know, I've, I've done things my way and made mistakes, and uh, at the same time, I've had a pretty good um, pretty good run at what I wanted to do. So, yeah, and I still here's the great thing, man. I still have the opportunity to train guys and and 
I'm getting calls from people. This summer is probably the busiest summer I've had. Uh, next week, man, I'm going to Vegas for uh, freak show wrestling for two days, 16th and 17th, and then the 18th and 19th, we're going to Los Angeles with freak show wrestling. And the week after that, I'm in Texas for a camp. Um, you know, so I mean, then we have Charlotte, the Fan Fest, at the end of the month. Uh, so you know, I'm, that's that's pretty cool to still be uh, getting booked for these camps and have people come out and want to hear what I have to say. And and once again, it's 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 all the same. It's just a, it's an opinion, and uh, there's not just one way to do this stuff. You know, I have your I have my way, you have your way, but the one way, the only way, the right way does not exist. Vince uh, said it a long time ago. Show me the stone. Show me where it's written in stone. This is the only way we can do it. And that's that's so cool to be able to go out and tell somebody who has hopes and dreams that I'm going to give you some ideas and I'm going to give you a direction. It's not the only direction. It may not be the direction you need to take necessarily, but listen to what I say, see if it works for you, and seek out other people as well. Don't just stay stagnant. And, and real quick, uh, if anybody's listening who wants to wrestle, you have to get out there. You can't stay in one place and expect to make it. You have to go out, and, and it has to be a passion of yours, and you have to be willing to lose money, lose lose friends, lose girlfriends, lose whatever it is, because that's what it takes. And if you want to make it, you have to do whatever it takes. But um, that's probably been the, the, the thing that I really enjoy the most now is training and uh get to see the, the guys make it. And Dr. Tom, where could we find you? Where where could the fine folks go if they want to book Dr. Tom or if they want to reach out on social media? They can go to drtompritchard.com. That's my website. There's a place to contact me there. I'm also on Twitter and Dr. Tom Pritchard. And I have a Facebook, uh, Tom Pritchard. It's on Facebook. So, you know, there's, and I've got a lot of, camps off Facebook, and a lot of people have contacted me on Facebook and Twitter. And, and, and again, the website. So, I mean, there's there's uh, three different venues right there you can uh, contact me at and uh, we'll go from there. Well, this has been awesome, and we would love to have you back for a part two so we can go into great detail about the Dr. X versus Brockus matches, but we're not even going to touch it tonight because we, we don't want you to uh, you know stay with us for a few more hours. <laughs> Thank God, man. No kidding. Yeah, guys, I do appreciate it as well, and I'd love to come back again. Thank you, Dr. Tom. Have a great night. We really appreciate it. You got a content.